Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you will be encouraged and empowered by this week's message and you would encounter God wherever you're listening from. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now, let's go into this week's message. All right. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you in a, a place of worship, an atmosphere of worship. And in keeping with the holiday season, I'm going to continue this chapter that Pastor Stacy began last week talking about Christmas. So it's very appropriate to go to some kind of birth narrative to talk about the Christmas season. So let's start in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And after we read that one verse, I'll introduce our theme for today. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Here is what it says. And the angel answered and said to her, obviously the angel speaking to Mary, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Let's pray, then I'll introduce the theme. Father, we thank you for your word today. For this season that we are in, um, the Christmas season, where we recognize and celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus, into the earth. Father, I ask that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. The eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That, Father, we would not just learn something new with our minds, but we would catch something new with our spirits today. That we would grow in our knowledge of who you are and be transformed into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want to talk to you about today is this theme, the humanity of God. The humanity of God. Now, my relationship to that phrase is a bit of an awkward one because it makes me feel uncomfortable to say the phrase, the humanity of God. Just to be honest, it feels a little irreverent. It almost feels like I'm being blasphemous to use the phrase, the humanity of God. And the fact that I feel that way is probably an indicator that some of you feel that way as well in this room. And here's where I want to go with that uncomfortability. The doctrine or the teaching or the position of the incarnation of God, it is one of the most controversial claims of Christianity. The claim that God became man. The claim that God put on flesh. The, God, the claim that God didn't just make us in his image, but then he became one of us. That is one of the most controversial claims that the entire New Testament makes. And what I want to say about that is the outrageousness of that claim actually is a part of its credibility. 
The New Testament writers, for the most part, were Jewish New Testament writers. There are a few Gentiles thrown in, but for the most part, they were Jewish writers, Jewish thinkers, Jewish leaders. One of the most commonly recited Jewish prayers is the Shema, which would, we would think of it as maybe the preamble to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments starts like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord he is one. Then it goes into the Ten Commandments. And you shall not put in other gods before me. But the beginning of it, and Jesus quotes this himself in the New Testament, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord he is one. The oneness of God, the exclusivity of God, the, the separatedness of God from everything else in creation is one of the core tenets of the Old Testament scriptures and Jewish thought. So the fact that Jewish writers were making the claim that God has now become a man and put on flesh is completely outrageous and it's the outrageous nature of that claim that is a part of its credibility. In other words, they were not making that claim by mistake. They were doing it intentionally because they believed in its reality. It was not a theological misstep. It was not, oh, I didn't know we're not supposed to say that. It was something they knew and something they still chose to do because they believed it. So let's consider just a few scriptures that describe the incarnation. The fact that God has put on flesh and become a man. Now, before we consider that though, let me give you, uh, actually, let me consider the scriptures first, then I'll give you some thoughts to go with it. Let's go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse number 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse number 1. We're considering scriptures that describe the incarnation, God's manifestation in the flesh as a human, as a man. That man being named Jesus. John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God. Notice the next phrase. And the Word was God. So the Word didn't just exist in the beginning. And the Word wasn't just with God. The Word was God, describing the mystery of the Trinity that God expressing Himself in these different ways. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and somehow the Word was also God Himself. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Talking about God as the Word, functioning and operating within creation. But then, if you fast forward down to verse number 14, John, this New Testament writer, makes this claim that is outrageous. And the Word, what Word? The Word that is God. Not just with God, but is God Himself. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9, verse number 19. By the way, just as a footnote, 
I'm going to be using a lot of scriptures today. So when I say go to somewhere, you can go to that place or you can jot it down because they'll have it for you on the screens. Colossians chapter 1 verse number 19, describing the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, in his flesh, in his body, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Jesus is not a part of God. Jesus is not a portion of God. Jesus is not a miniature God. Jesus is God himself. And according to Colossians chapter 1, verse number 19, all of God dwelt in Jesus. All, the fullness, all of it. Let's go to another scripture, 1 John Chapter number four, verses one through three. The reason I want to go here is because I want to show that not only does the New Testament describe the reality of the incarnation, that God became flesh, it talks about it as a non-negotiable feature of the Christian faith. First John chapter four, verses one through three. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. I love it. In other words, don't, don't just embrace anything that comes down the pipe. Whatever's coming at you, you need to test it. This especially needs to be heard in our information age, where we consume content like no other generation. We, we, we habitually train our mind to intake more and more and more and more and more and more content every single day. And the New Testament writers are saying, don't just take it in without questioning what you're receiving. So it says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verses 2 and 3 tells you how to test the spirits. One of the ways in which you discern the spirit of God from the spirits that are not of God. Verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. In other words, if we embrace Jesus without affirming his humanity, we are not in sync with the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God did not just give us a, a non-material Savior. God gave us an embodied Savior named Jesus who came in the flesh. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. All right. Now, as I'm talking about this, I already feel in the room... And it is not a rebuke, by the way. It's just an observation. I anticipated it. I already feel in the room, where is he going? And how does this matter for my life? Okay, God came in flesh. That's enshrined in Christmas carols. But why is it a point that needs to be made during the Christmas season? I'm glad you asked. One of my favorite books is by an author named A.W. Tozer, and the book is called The Knowledge of the Holy. Here's one right here. I have different copies of it floating around, 
Both of my copies are marked up with pen quite extensively. And he makes an interesting point in the book. I'm about to read to you from it, and they'll also have the quotes on the screens for you. The point he makes is that what we know about God is not all there is to know about God. What we know about God is what he has revealed about himself because that's what we need to know about God as humans. So let's read this portion of script, uh, scripture. It's not scripture. I'm not being blasphemous. Let's read, I'm going to read this portion of text from A.W. Tozer. It's on page 46. For those of you who have your knowledge of the, your holy, of the holy clay and Olivia, I expect you to have it in your bag. All right. Here's what he says. In the awful abyss. Now, don't be thrown by that phrase. He's using the word awful in its technical sense, full of awe. All right. In the awful abyss of the divine being may lie attributes of which we know nothing and which can have no meaning for us, just as the attributes of mercy and grace can have no personal meaning for seraphim or cherubim. These holy beings may know of these qualities in God, but be unable to feel them sympathetically for the reason that they have not sinned and so do not call forth God's mercy and grace. So there may be, and I believe there surely are, other aspects of God's essential being, which he has not revealed even to his ransom and spirit-illuminated children. These hidden facets of God's nature concern his relation to none but himself. They are like the far side of the moon, which we know is there, but which has never been explored and has no immediate meaning for men on earth. There is no reason for us to try to discover what has not been revealed. Is it, it is enough to know that God is God. In another place, he quotes a hymn from Charles Wesley and says it like this, regarding the attributes of God and how what we know about God is not all there is to know about God. Here's what he says, quoting Charles Wesley. Glory, thine attributes confess, glorious all and numberless. In other words, we can't count all of your attributes. We don't know all that there is to know about you. And if we take that just out of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, or the hymn from Charles Wesley, and we think about it through the lens of Scripture, Revelation chapter 19 says something fascinating to me about Jesus as he descends upon a white horse from heaven. There's this interesting little detail that you may not think about that much, but it is an important detail about the nature of God revealed through Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. We know those parts, we love that part, but consider this. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Jesus has a name that nobody knows except himself. Communicating there are parts of God you don't know and you'll never know. There's some things about him that are unsearchable to the human mind. Now, what is my point in making that point? If God is infinite in his nature, 
And he has only revealed certain things about himself to us we would be wise to pay attention to the things that he has revealed about himself because of the infinite things that he hasn't revealed about himself. In other words, if we only know a portion of who God is, then it's necessary for us to know what that portion is because God revealed it for a purpose. God revealed that he's a God of grace because we need to know him as the God of grace. God revealed to Abraham that he's Jehovah Jireh because we need to know him as Jehovah Jireh. God revealed himself to Gideon as the God of peace because we need to know him as the God of peace. So if God has revealed himself in certain ways in scripture, we need to know what those things are because they are necessary for us. They're necessary for our well-being. So the study of the Bible and the study of theology is not detached academic labor. A.W. Tozer makes the point in this book. He says, because we are the handiwork of God, it thus follows that all of our problems and their solutions are theological. Another theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul said it like this. He wrote a book called Everyone's a Theologian. That doesn't mean that everyone has a degree from a seminary. What it means is that the foundation of everyone's life is a theological foundation. And what we believe about God determines how we live and how we act. Everyone's a theologian because everyone has some kind of thought about who God is. So if we don't allow the witness of scripture to form that foundation, then we will live with thoughts that are incorrect. But if we will instead open our hearts to say, I have no idea how the incarnation of God helps me tomorrow morning when I wake up, but if God revealed it, I need to know it. If we will take that posture, we will be amazed at how God takes revelation that feels detached and he makes it personal and living in our lives. Let me read to you one more quote from A.W. Tozer about the usefulness of growing in our understanding of who God is. Here's what he says in another part of the book. For the scriptures not only teach truth, they also show its uses for mankind. The inspired writers were men of like passion with us, dwelling in the midst of life. What they learned about God became to them a sword, a shield, a hammer. It became their life motivation, their good hope, and their confident expectation. From the objective facts of theology, their thoughts, their hearts made how many? thousand joyous deductions and personal applications. What he's saying is that the writers of scripture, they were people just like us. And what they discovered about God, or rather what God revealed about himself to them, became as practical as the hammer sitting in your tool bag at home. It shaped their lives. So, the incarnation of God, the humanity of God, what does that have to do with us? Here's the big idea we'll spend the rest of the time unpacking. The humanity of God makes possible the godliness of humanity. The humanity of God makes possible 
the godliness of humanity. The more we learn about the incarnate God, the more we grow toward holiness. The more we learn about who God is embodied in and through and revealed by Jesus Christ, the more we are transformed into his image. Now, let me make one more point before I push into that thought a little further. Some of you may be getting tripped on my language of saying God revealed in and through Jesus Christ, and you may still have this thought, does that mean not necessarily that Jesus is God, but that God used Jesus to reveal himself? Is there a difference there? Are we saying that Jesus is God's agent, or are we saying that Jesus is God himself embodied in the flesh? And of course, Scripture would claim that Jesus is God himself embodied in the flesh. Why do I make that distinction separated from just that Jesus was God's agent? Because every other person in Scripture that was simply used as an agent of God did not receive worship. The only other person in scripture that receives worship and is exalted by God for doing so is Jesus himself. You go in the book of Revelation and this heavenly representative is taking John through this encounter. I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's an angel. I don't know who it is. And then in this moment of Revelation, John gets so caught up with what's being revealed, he falls down, he starts worshiping this heavenly representative. And immediately, this representative says, do not do that, I'm among your brethren, the prophets, worship God instead. Furthermore, we get into the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, Herod stands up dressed in royal apparel, and he starts to speak, and the people say it's the voice of a God, not of a man. And because in that moment, Herod does not rebuke them for doing so, the Bible says that God sent an angel of the Lord to strike Herod dead and his body was eaten by worms. In other words, God doesn't play with people receiving worship that belongs only to him. But over and over and over and over again, Jesus not only speaks on behalf of God, he receives worship as God. And God doesn't rebuke Jesus, God raises him from the dead as an act of ultimate affirmation. We get into the New Testament, into the book of Revelation, and we find the worship that belongs to God alone also being given to Jesus Christ because Jesus is not just God's representative. Jesus is God among us in the flesh as a man. God incarnate. The humanity of God makes the godliness of humanity possible. All right? As we grow in our understanding of who God is revealed through Jesus Christ, we also grow toward holiness and godliness. Let me read to you a few scriptures concerning that. Titus chapter one, verse number one. Now, if you're like, Titus not been there a while, go to Hebrews, that's a little easier to find, it's bigger, and go left, two books. So you find, rummage around and find Hebrews and go left, a couple of books. Skip over Philemon, it has a lot to say though it's short, and we'll go to Titus. Now, here's what Titus says in chapter one, verse one. The Apostle Paul is writing to a spiritual son and he says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and 
the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with holiness. I'm, I'm sorry, with godliness. The acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. I love that phrase the Apostle Paul uses. The acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Teaching us that when we grow in our understanding and our embracing of the truth, when we acknowledge the truth, what it leads us into is a lifestyle that's in greater harmony with godliness. If what you're believing is not leading you toward godliness, it's probably not the truth. Because the Apostle Paul says that the acknowledgement of the truth accords with godliness. It is in harmony with a lifestyle that looks like God. 2 Peter chapter number 1 verses 2 through 4. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. I read them often, quote them often, pray them often because they have such an, they've had such an impact on my life. But there are scriptures that reveal, again, the more we grow in the knowledge of God, the more we ought to grow in the character of God as well. Again, that, that my point is that theology is not detached academic, dis, an, a, a detached academic discipline, though it can be studied in that format. Theology is knowing God in such a way that it transforms you from the inside out. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace be multiplied through what avenue? The avenue of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In that avenue of the knowledge of God, what happens? Verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Where are those things found? It's found in the knowledge of him. As you grow in your knowledge of God, you gain access to everything he's already provided for you regarding life and godliness. Who called us by glory and virtue. Now verse four is crazy. It may make you uncomfortable because the New Testament makes audacious claims, claims for which we feel uncomfortable. We wouldn't believe them unless they were the truth. Here's what it says. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. God's intention for you is to be a partaker of his divine nature. God beca became a partaker of your human nature so you could be a partaker of his divine nature. What's the result? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You do not have to be in bondage to corruption through the avenue of lust after worldly things. Why? Because through the knowledge of God, all things have already been given to you pertaining to life and godliness so that you might become a partaker of the divine nature and this is what his promises were always about. All right, one more. And this one really helps us segue into the idea of the incarnation. Let's go to 1 Timothy. Again, if you've not been in Timothy lately, go back to Hebrews and left a few more. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 16. 
First Timothy chapter three, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, before we read any further, let's just consider the statement. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He's not saying what he's about to say is not controversial. He's saying what's not controversial is how controversial what I'm about to say actually is. What's so controversial about what I'm about to say is it is a great mystery that's hard to explain, hard to wrap our minds around, but somehow this mystery leads you to godliness. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is the first claim he makes? God was manifested in the flesh. What's the mystery? that leads us to godliness, the mystery of the incarnation that God was manifested in the flesh. Now, let me go back to my big idea and let's ask ourselves about it. The humanity of God makes the godliness of humanity possible. How? What does that look like? What does scripture have to teach us about God taking on the human nature that then gives us access to be partakers of the divine nature? Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Again, I know we're going to lots of verses, but our common theme here is the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ and the transition it brings to our soul. To go from being entrapped by the lust of the world to being liberated into the delight of God. All right, so how does that transition happen? Exodus chapter 3, let's look at verses 7 and 8. Why are we looking at 7 and 8? Because even before God came in the flesh through Jesus Christ, we see glimpses of the incarnation ahead of time. We see what it's all about before we ever get there. We see foreshadowings of what's coming. Now, it's the Christmas season. Many of you have already watched Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We have at my house. The way some of you are looking at me, many of you have not. <laughs> That's okay. My wife and I are huge Charles Dickens fans. We read his novels often. And what we learn about Charles Dickens is no detail is wasted. You get these long novels, some of them a thousand plus pages. And he puts details in chapter one that you think are irrelevant. But because he is the author, knows where it's going, he's actually preparing you for shifts that are coming later. And I was, I was out walking one day, and this is a bit of a different message, but I want to tell you how God talks to me. You're going to think it's nerdy, but it's okay. I was out walking one day. And God spoke to me very clearly and said, make sure you don't trust Charles Dickens more than you do me. I know y'all are like, ultra nerd. I, God would never say that to me. I get that. But what he meant by that was, I've come to trust Charles Dickens as an author because I know what he's doing is building tension and suspense that he will alleviate later with major plot twists. 
That even if I don't understand what he's doing right now as an author, I know that he knows where it's going and these details that look irrelevant will be repurposed later in a dramatic way. And God was telling me, make sure that you don't think that what you're doing right now is irrelevant. I'm introducing details that will show up later in some dramatic plot twists that you're going to need, all right? That's the way scripture works too. We see a lot of glimpses of what's to come. So why are we going to Exodus 3 to talk about the incarnation of God that shows up in Matthew chapter 1? Why are we going to Exodus 3 to talk about something that God does a couple of thousand years later? Well, let's read Exodus 3 verses 7 and 8, and it gives us a glimpse of what's coming through Jesus, the Son of God. And the Lord said, to who? Said to Moses, about what? About the slavery of the children of Israel in Egypt. What does God say to Moses? Through the burning bush, about that. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. What does God say through the burning bush to Moses? I've seen them. I, I've heard them. And I know their pain. I know their sorrows. What's the result of God seeing them, hearing them, and knowing them? What's the next moment? Verse number eight, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land. And he keeps going with the promises. What is the result of God seeing them, knowing them, hearing them? God, after seeing them, hearing them, and knowing them, doesn't stay in heaven. He comes down to deliver them from the pain that he is familiar with because they're his people. If God is able to say to Moses through a burning bush, I have seen them, I've heard them, and I know them, how much more can God say to us through Jesus Christ, I've seen you, I've heard you, and I know you. I don't just know you because I made you. I don't just know your sorrow because I read your journal and you told me about it. I know your sorrow because I put it on. I experienced it. I got in the middle of it. I became a slave with you. I became a man with you. I became dust with you. I didn't just breathe into the dust. I got into the dust. I see you. I hear you. And I know you. Hebrews chapter 4 describes about the dramatic reality of the incarnation of God. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, God incarnate. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, 
the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So verse 14 is talking about God ascended. That's a different message. God ascended. He has passed through the heavens as the great high priest. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians, before he ascended, he first descended. Just like God with Moses, before he ascended to Sinai to get tablets of stone, he descended to Egypt to get into the muck and the mire of their slavery. So, verse 14 talks about God ascended, a great high priest that has passed through the heavens. But verse 15 talks about not God ascended, but God incarnate. God descended, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. It goes on later, I'll come back to this verse, so don't, don't leave from it yet. It goes on later in Hebrews to say that every high priest was chosen from among men so that he might have compassion on their ignorances and their weaknesses. And this high priest, our high priest Jesus, is no different. He was chosen from among men. Why? So he could sympathize with our weaknesses. So he knows what it's like to live with our temptations. But Hebrews would go on to say, yet without sin. He, he himself has experienced every temptation you have ever or will ever experience in your flesh. He himself has experienced every pain you have ever or will ever experience in your flesh. He himself has experienced every sorrow you have ever or will ever experience in your flesh. Because scripture says he's not a high priest just ascended, detached, unable to understand our sorrow. No, he became one of us. There was a silly song that came out like in the 90s. What if God was one of us? He was one of us. He became one of us. My wife is laughing now. She may not recover and listen to the rest of this message. She's going, I can't believe you used that example. But God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And according to this scripture, He's not detached in heaven going, I, I, don't, I don't get it, guys. Why can't you just live holy? I don't get it, guys. I wrote it down on tablets to make it super clear. He's not up there going, I don't get it. He's up there. Jesus is up there in heaven right now interceding for you from a place of compassion because he's been where you've been. He knows what it feels like and your weakness he tasted for himself and his tears for you don't come from a place of acknowledgement that what you're going through is hard. It comes from a place of understanding because he went through the same thing. So here's what the scripture is saying. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin so he because he became flesh he in compassion knows what we know no know, knows what we know he, he sees he hears he's experienced what we have experienced therefore he can sympathize with us his intercession comes out of 
identifying with our pain, what's the result? Look at the result in verse number 16. Let us therefore, remember when you see a therefore in scripture, find out what it's there for. It's a conclusion to what the author just said. Because he is compassionate toward your weakness, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is the author of Hebrews saying? Before a living, holy God, you do not have to be embarrassed by your weaknesses because he himself has experienced them too. So when you come to him, his throne is a throne of mercy because he knows what it feels like to be you. He knows what it feels like to experience what you've experienced. And our high priest is not detached and just listening to our conversations in prayer, just getting through it. That's not what he's doing. He's in the middle of it with you. Why is this important? Because some of you have wrestled with your faith in God because you've seen him as God ascended only and not God descended first. You've seen him, you've seen him only as the elevated high priest, not as the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us. And as I was praying, I honestly, I, I, I was preparing this message. I couldn't figure out like, Lord, where do I go at this point of the message? I, and I couldn't find the way. I was like, Lord, I'm just praying. Like, Lord, where do you want to go? Then all of a sudden, the Lord brought Thomas to my mind. And it felt as though he was saying to my heart, there are people who are like Thomas in this room. T Thomas gets a bad rap. He, he gets like a bad reputation. People are like, doubting Thomas, you know, we always say that, right? Don't be a doubting Thomas, because after the resurrection, they, you know, all the apostles believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They're like, yeah, he did it. You know, not everybody, it was a process, but in, in general, they're like, yeah, he's alive. And we're like, doubting Thomas, he just couldn't believe. But consider what happened. Thomas doesn't just say, if I see him, then I'll believe. What does he say? If I see the prints in his hand and the scars in his side. If I can touch him in those places, then I'll believe. What's the parallel to us? Some of you are having difficulty believing in God because you don't realize that he has scars. And you've tried to find God through a reasoned intellectual vein and it's left you empty because that's not the vein that is ever meant to satisfy your heart. God has more than enough to say there. I'm not saying God's not reasonable, intellectual, he is. But, that, but, but our hearts are satisfied not just by knowing he was raised from the dead, but by knowing he put on flesh and he took some beatings and he died on a cross and he went to the grave. And I believe this morning that some of you need to know that our God in heaven 
still has the scars of what he went through on the earth. I would think that Jesus' glorified body would erase the scars, but I don't think they did. I, don't th I think they're still there. Why? Because when John looks into the book of Revelation, what are they all singing about? The lamb who was slain. And when John turns to see the lion, what does he see? A lamb as though it has been slain. In other words, the glorified body of Jesus still carries the marks of what he went through on the earth because he never wants to forget what it's like to be where you are. He still carries the wounds of what he experienced here. Why? So he can intercede there. Because we intercede. He doesn't intercede from a detached place of being ascended only. He intercedes as the one who descended before he ascended. And his descent into humanity is then what gives humanity access to ascend with him into heavenly places and to be partakers of the divine nature. I want to read one more passage. I know we've hit a lot. One more very short passage, just two verses, out of Genesis chapter 16. This story really needs a lot of focus and time that obviously we're not going to give it this morning, but it's the story of Hagar, who's uh, just a complicated story. It's a complicated story. She suffers much pain in the house of Abraham and Sarah, two people chosen by God. Which helps me because it lets me know just because you're in the house of someone chosen by God doesn't mean there's not pain in the house. And some of you have struggled to understand your pain because it happened in Abraham's house. Just because Abraham was chosen doesn't mean that all of his actions were condoned. And people that God chooses can still do things that God doesn't like to you. That's the whole thing of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. You would think that because Peter is like in the inner three with Jesus, everything he does is sanctioned by Jesus. But what happens, because Peter had not been in a place of watchful prayer, he responds to a situation out of his flesh and cuts someone's ear off with a sword that Jesus made sure he had. In the book of Luke, Jesus made sure that Peter had a sword. Just go read it. Peter, Jesus is like, hey, we got a sword around here? And they're like, we got two. Jesus is like, okay, that's enough. I'm, you know. He got a little carried away. They were like hiding it, you know. Like, it's like Judas and somebody, probably Judas and Peter had like swords hanging around. So Jesus is like, we got a sword? And, th and they actually say, we've got two. And he's like, okay, that's enough. I just want to make sure that somebody's got a sword. I want to make sure Peter has a sword. Not because I want him to use it, because I want to see what he'll do with it. Whoa. In a situation where all of a sudden he's being tempted to choose between spirit and flesh. All right? So Peter has a sword that Jesus made sure he had. And then all of a sudden a situation comes up. Peter not been in a place of prayer. And watch this. Peter reacts in his flesh and cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest. You know what Jesus had to do? 
Jesus had to heal the ear that his disciple cut off. I think a lot of times what has to happen in our lives is that Jesus needs to heal us where leaders have cut us. And we thought it was God cutting us just because the sword was in the hand of a leader. But just because someone chosen by God is carrying the sword doesn't mean the sword came from God. Or rather, the infliction came from God. So, Hagar is a, is a complicated story because she's in Abraham's house, Sarah's house, and she's experiencing intense pain. So what does she do? She runs away. And this is not the topic versus uh, later I'm getting to verse 13 and 14, but I, I want to handle one quick thing. She runs away and the angel comes. And in verse 8, the angel says, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? Ask two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? Two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar responds, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress. Hagar answers one question, not two. Where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm fleeing from Sarah. Because when you're being driven by pain, all you can see is where you've come from, not where you're going. So Hagar knew what she was running away from. She didn't know where she was going though. So God begins to basically work Hagar into a corner so he can provide for her in a miraculous way. And watch what happens with Hagar. Verse number 13 and 14. God, God speaks to her, God answers her, God gives her promises, gives her instruction. She has this major God encounter moment, then verse 13 and 14. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees. Why does she say that? Because living in Abraham's house, she didn't feel like she was ever seen. And now to her surprise, she's encountering a God that we'll, that we'll read about later in Exodus 3 who says, I see, I hear, and I know. She says, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also seen him who sees me? What a question. Have I seen him who sees me, and then watch verse 14. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Be'er Lahairoi, you know what that means? It means the well of the one who sees me. I wanna ask you a question. What well are you drinking from this morning? Are you drinking from the well of the one who sees you? Or are you trying to find affirmation in other places? Hagar's life was changed when she saw the one who saw her. Who do you see when you see Jesus? The incarnate God, the one who was made flesh. You see the God who sees you. You see the God who hears you. 
You see the God and experience the God who knows your sorrows. In Exodus 3, when it says, I have known their sorrows, that word sorrow can literally be translated pain. I have known their pain. Do you know God simply as God ascended? Or do you know him yet as God descended? The incarnate one. Do you know the humanity of God? The one who got in the dust with you. The Bible says in Psalm 103, he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And I love that verse. Delaney and I pray, we're like, God, remember that we're dust. But as I was studying this, I realized he doesn't just remember that we're dust, he became the dust. And he knows what it's like to be where we are. And because he knows what it's like to be where we are, all of a sudden a bridge is built from where we are to where he's called us to be. Because the incarnation of God doesn't just simply mean he knows the pain. That's not where Exodus 3 ends. It goes on to say, and I have come down to deliver them from the pain that I have known. He became flesh so that he could weep with you in the middle of your sorrows and through his own intercession lead you out of it into the place he's called you to be. Team, go ahead and join me. I know I've gone probably a little longer this morning. If we have the musicians join us. I just, I sense this morning the compassion of God saying, I want, I want them to know that I know. <laughs> so if you would just, just maybe shut your eyes and, and hear, these, hear these words. God wants you to know that he knows. I want you to hear what God said to Moses through the burning bush, but now said in a better way. I believe God wants to speak to you through his son Jesus and what he's saying to you this morning is tell them I have seen them I have heard them and I know them if you will very reverently stand this morning and as we stand I want to ask our prayer teams to go ahead and move into place we want to pray with people this morning and even if you don't move to a person of prayer on a prayer team, I believe God wants to minister to you right where you are. As I was preparing this message, I could not get these lyrics out of my head that comes from a hymn written at the end of the 1800s. And if you don't mind putting those up on the screen, I don't have them written down in front of me. Because I want you to see them. The hymn is very simple. The hymn is called, No Not One. No, not one. And here's what it says. Jesus knows all, our, all about our struggles. And he will guide till the day is done. There's no friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Why is he lowly? Because he made himself lowly in our behalf. That's why it says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. 
There's a moment in John chapter 8 where there's a woman caught in the act of adultery. No doubt she's thrown down on the ground and her eyes are looking down into the dust. And there's accusers all around her. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't stand in a place of condemnation. The Bible says he kneels down and he starts to write in the dust. In other words, what he's communicating is, I'm not staying up here if you're down there. If you're in the dust, I'm getting down in the dust with you. And I'm not staying up in this theological argument talking to all the Pharisees. I'm getting down on your level and I'm writing messages in the sand to a woman caught in the act of adultery. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what sorrow you're facing, but I want you to know he's not just the elevated God looking down with a frown. He is the compassionate Jesus getting in the dust with you saying, come on, lean on me. I know a way out of here. I know a way out of here. So if you would just posture your heart in a prayerful place. If you want to move to a member of our prayer team you're able to do that but i want you to receive from god right now father i thank you this morning that you're not detached you're not far away the christmas message is that you're here you're near you care you are one of us you're not a disembodied spirit that doesn't know what it's like to face what we're facing but you are real and you have real flesh and you have real scars and you have real emotional pain from where your one of your closest friends betrayed you you know what it's like to face what we face so father i thank you that your compassion is here your mercy is here we do what hebrews 4 tells us to do we come boldly to the throne of grace we expect because your word says it to find mercy and to obtain grace for our time of need father i ask that your presence would be here in such a real and tangible way father i ask for those areas where people have been wounded and the house of abraham are wounded by the sword of peter father i ask that you would come in into those areas and give healing give promises restore our ability to hear your voice restore our ability to feel your love restore our ability lord to relate to you in a way that's not just running from pain but we're building our lives on your promises god we ask you would be here in a healing way in a real way in an incarnational way that god who put on flesh and made his home among us be among us now and bring healing and life in jesus name in jesus name